Eric Mason is a church planter who lives and ministers in the heart of Philadelphia. There he serves as the co-founder and lead pastor of Epiphany Fellowship. He is a husband and a father, and he's the author of a new book titled Manhood Restored, How the Gospel Makes Men Whole, which was published by B&H. Manhood Restored is one of the top books published in 2013, in my opinion, for its gospel clarity and for the way it helps to outline God's distinct calling for men. On page 53, Mason writes this just to give you a flavor of the book. He writes, quote, Think about it. The very fact that Jesus came to earth is evidence of his willingness to stare sin in the eye. In Jesus Christ, God became human. He chose to live in the world that man had destroyed. He faced fatigue, sweat, hunger, and even rejection. He faced the self-righteous sin of religious people. He faced the self-preserving sin of his closest friends who abandoned him. He faced being misunderstood by his family, mocked by society, maligned by the crowds, and even stolen from by the soldiers. And that's just a small sampling of the rest of the sin that he took upon his shoulders at the cross. And yet he went on. This is manliness at its best. This is courage at its greatest. End quote. As we will hear from Mason later, the topic of defining masculinity is opening new doors for gospel outreach among non-Christians in his neighborhood. I put Mason on the line to talk about a few of the key themes in his book and to talk more about how Christ is the preeminent model of masculinity and how the cross and the resurrection make possible the restoration of true manhood. And I wanted to talk with him about the destructive forces of pornography on manhood and about the role of missions in the local church and how that encourages and builds masculinity. And then to also talk about fatherhood and how to be a better dad in the home. I wanted to discuss all these topics with him. And so I caught up with him and I began by asking him why he wrote Manhood Restored and why he wrote it now. You know, actually, I I was going to write on something else and... It, you know, it was it was interesting. I was going to write on another subject. I was going to write on either urban missions or something like that, because people have been encouraging me to do that. And when I got with B and H and Lifeway, and they began, they just interviewed me. They brought me down to Nashville and just started interviewing me about different things. It was on my heart, and I don't know how the Holy Spirit did it, but basically, it came out that manhood was something that I needed to write on um, within the next two years or whatever. And so. Uh, um, and, and as I began to dive into it, I, I, I really began to realize that I spent the majority of my ministry of, the, of almost the last 20 years discipling men and realized that God had graced me with a, a few insights on just manhood. And my desire was to to write really a book that reflected uh, who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us so it wouldn't be a book that just you know kind of beat men up. Um, and then on the other extreme, it wouldn't be a book that didn't deal with the sinfulness of man. Um, but then I wanted to offer um, biblical solutions. I wanted it to be a Bible-saturated book, Jesus-saturated book, and um, but but contemporary to the culture that we're in. And as I dove into things, it, it seemed to strike a chord with me. Tell us a little bit about uh, your own father. Uh, you talk about him a little bit in the book. Tell us about him and, and give us his story. Yeah, well, my father was, um, he, you know, he was raised in Jim Crow South. Um, he went to World War II at uh, 16 years old. He lied about his age, and they let him lie about his age because that's how bad he wanted to get out of Jim Crow South. He figured going to World War II was, would have been uh, better than being in Jim Crow South. And so he uh, went to World War II, ended up going into the Army, uh, 
uh, I can't remember which war. He was 91st Infantry and the 24th Infantry, but basically he was a Buffalo soldier. Those legendary infantry grunts from, um, you know, uh, the Army during World War II. Uh, and obviously um, he was a probably, uh, he's pretty much a decorated soldier because he got a Purple Heart in each war. But because of the impact of them coming back and not being received as equals, most of the African-American men along with him that came back from the war and came back to Jim Crow America, uh, I mean, he went back to Jim Crow South and came north, and he threw, they threw their Purple Hearts in the trash. And matter, matter of fact, we're, we're in the midst of talking to him about getting it reissued. So <laughs> Amazing. What a story. Uh, so, so how did this all affect him as a father for you growing up? Yeah, well, my father was a 100% disabled veteran, so they don't give you 100% disability for nothing. And he was, I mean, he was 100% disability. I mean, he's 90. He'll be 90 this year. So he's been 100% disabled since his 20s or 30s. And um, and so my father, his father left him at a very young age, like when he was six months old. I can't remember exactly when. And it, it really had, I mean, to this day, if you bring up my dad's dad to him, he has a deep sense of bitterness and brokenness about his dad leaving and him rarely seeing him and his lack of involvement in his life. And that impacted the way he raised us because it didn't necessarily drive him uh, to be uh, a different type of father in the sense of, I guess he thought he was a different type of father because he was physically there. And um, that doesn't mean he was, I mean, he wasn't the worst father, but there wasn't, there wasn't for him just a model. So he had no idea how to lead us and develop us into into young men and that type of thing. And so, he, I mean, he was an alcoholic most of my life until about 30 years ago. And then, um, well, well, the beginning of my life, not most of my life, but beginning of my life, until about 20, 30, well, a little over 30 years ago. And, and, um, and so he's doing, he's doing a lot better. He, he loves the Lord now, has a relationship with Christ now, but, but it was, it was very, very difficult growing up under a man that really didn't understand all of his life while he was just extremely angry, angry at life. And, you know, and it, it, it was, just, it was, yeah. So he's a lot better now though. Yeah. But that's how pretty much the house I was raised in. Man, thank you for sharing this story with us. I, I really appreciate it. And, you know, we have a number of models of manhood today. Some are good, some are poor. And uh, what you do in Manhood Restored is that you point to Jesus. You write, quote, Jesus and Jesus alone has exemplified manhood, end quote. How would you explain this to someone who doesn't think of Christ as a model of masculinity? Speak to someone who, for whom this category is new to them. Yeah, I, I think that it's, it's really, really helpful because actually, you know, I wrote the book with my neighborhood in mind. Um, because I, I live in a, a mostly Islamic neighborhood, black Orthodox Muslim neighborhood. And most of the men, drug dealers, most of the men around here, if, if they claim any religion, it would be Islam. I mean, period. I mean, probably 90%. So, so I wrote it because I've dialogued with many of them. They know me. And I've dialogued with them and... I'm pretty straightforward about who Christ is with them. And, and one of the things that I wanted to do is I, I really wrote the book as an apologetic to them in mind so that they could, because they don't view Christianity or Jesus in a very, very masculine way. And so because of that, I wanted to show off his godliness, his holiness 
in his in his humanity, even though he's 100% God, I wanted to I wanted to emphasize the 100% um, um, uh, man that he is, and begin to extract principles from it that that men can relate to, and that men can't relate to, because because I think there's some ways in which Christ is so otherworldly that it will upgrade their view of what manhood is, and so. That's how, that's really how I kind of explain it because I wanted to. That's why I picked characteristics of manhood so that um, I, I did everything from sensitivity to zealous, you know, so they can show two sides of the same coin so that the man can see, hey, God, Jesus is zealous or jealous uh, in a good way. Like every man gets jealous, but let's explain what his jealousy is all about. And and then on the other hand, though, I said he's sensitive. But let's explain, let's, let's, let's show how he redefines sensitivity from a heavenly perspective and also a manly perspective. And, and, and what's been interesting is that's one of the things that I keep hearing from men reoccurringly. And, I, and there's so many men even now that I'm, that I'm meeting when I go places or whatever that are saying, man, hey, I can give this to my unbelieving friends. I've been waiting for a tool that I can use to be kind of common ground with my unsaved friend. And so that's, you know... And so more so, that that's pretty much how I begin to engage. Even a non, I engage in non-Christians a lot, especially Muslims, about um, because they believe in Tanakh, and because they believe in Tanakh, aka Old Testament. I I utilize Christ-centered principles of showing Jesus off and how it either typifies or through a longitudinal theme, redemptive historical theme, and and use that as a connecting ground for them. That's the technical way, but manhood restored is really a practical way that I take Old Testament, even though I use a lot of New Testament too, to kind of relate and communicate Jesus to Muslims and other people who um, wouldn't necessarily, um, because in the Northeast, it's it's extremely, it's a lot of religious education up here, which, because all of the Ivy Leagues up here, so this is post-post-Christian, like America's post-Christian, but up here, because all the Ivy Leagues and everything's here, it's even impacted how people on the street think because some of that intellectualism has gotten to even just a regular person who's able to give an apologetic for it. So the book, that's why I wrote it also. So it seems to be what you're saying is that there's a, a cultural openness to what masculinity is in the first place. There's such a cultural confusion really about what it means to be a man, and then this then opens the door to speak about Jesus Christ in the gospel. Is that right? Absolutely, absolutely. Fascinating. That That is really interesting. How then would you say, um, how, how would you say that godly manhood is different from cultural macho-ness? Well, we would look at cultural macho-ness, we would connect that more to Genesis 3, um, the fall. Um, we, we would say, a Christian, we would say that cultural macho-ness is just man emphasizing the fact that, the, that he's responding rightly to the curse. Um, you know, the whole... The whole he will he will try to he will dominate. It, it's a it's a reflection of domination, and it's a reflection of more of external persona versus internal reality. And so, and so and so the whole cultural macho thing is just really a caricature and an attempt for man to put on paraphernalia of manhood versus being a man. That's very good. And, um, you know, at Desiring God, we get emails just about every day on the, on questions about pornography. It's, it's clearly a massive struggle for men and women, too, but men especially. Wh- what is the effect of pornography on manhood and masculinity? Yeah, I think uh, at the center of pornography is sexual selfishness. 
I mean, at the same, I mean, and, and support, I mean, because it's it's really all sexual sins are a product of sexual selfishness and uh, and just the selfishness of man and the greed of man and and the idolatry of man and so that that's the core of it and so and that's why I deal with it and that's why I had a whole chapter on sexuality. One of the books that really impacted my and helped reshape my thinking on. Uh, uh, sexuality, of course, is. I mean, past, Dr. Piper writes a good book on sexuality, but it's another book that's. It's it's probably like 500 pages, but it's called True Sexual Morality, and it's a phenomenal. I, I think every man needs to read it because it's a little technical and it, it's a little ontological. But the 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 great thing about it is it really helps you to trace how culture has played on the sinfulness and selfishness of man. And, and many different facets of culture, and so that's a big thing for me. In the book, is is is, is answering, helping guys to deal with this their selfishness, not just with the pornography itself. Because the porno, if you just say, "Man, get covenant eyes," which you should, um, you know, "Man, get you know accountability," which you should. You, uh, one of the things that I've just learned from pastoring people is, man, guys got all of that in place, and they're still sinning. And so, I mean, I, I have had guys that know that people are watching their covenant eyes thing, and they will go in. I mean, I'm talking about they're watching lewd sites that are, and you see that progression. And you, uh, when, when you see what they're watching, you see that they, they progress more deeply into it because their selfishness does isn't because 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 the um, the accountability that they have is 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 not a firewall for their soul. And so, and so, therefore, if you don't deal with the selfishness in, in your care and commitment to, you know, your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, that stuff doesn't matter. And so one of the things I try to get men to do with is, is deal with it, utilizing Jesus Christ's life as a way to look at his sacrificial death to see how he, how he renews us through belief in him to be able to have sacrificial enjoyment and satisfaction. And that's, that's why Dr. Piper's theology of joy is so important, be, be, and Christian hedonism is important because I think anything that we, because one of the things that men feel like at the end of the day is is God doesn't care that I have these desires, and it doesn't make sense that I have these desires, and He's put these restrictions on me. Um, but 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 on the other hand, they have to see how how Jesus Christ died to replace our affections with good affections and great outlets. And so that's kind of what I try to work with men with. That is so important. So the point is pursuing the sinful pleasures of pornography is to forfeit a greater pleasure in Christ. Absolutely. And that's the main point. It's like the pleasure of enjoying what God created without an alarm system going off in your soul is the best thing ever. So That's very well said. I think this is so helpful in the book when you talk about Christ as the perfect model of masculinity because, because he fights temptation. He fights sin. Explain this connection that you make in the book. Yeah, and talking about fighting temptation, you know, one of the things I wanted to, I, I was kind of writing about, this came out of arguments I've had with non-Christians, and it was, you know, they talk about how Christ going to teach me how to be whatever, and he's been tempted. And I said, well, you have a, uh, temptation isn't, it's, most people think when they hear the word temptation in Hebrews, they hear the word temptation, and they think that he had it, it meant um, execution of the desire, and 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 I and I and I said no. Temptation is the authentic presentation of something that would attempt to draw you in. 
And so, and so the reason why I talk so much about temptation and, and, and Christ uh, overcoming temptation is to show that Jesus' incarnational victory over sin is shown in him facing it is just as difficultly as we did, yet did not execute it and did not sin. Therefore, he empowers us to be able to do the same based on Romans 6. And so that's a, that's a big part of the, the whole deal for me, man. One writer has said that a wife's greatest need is for her husband to protect her from his own sin. And uh, there seems to be a way in which fighting pornography, in, in that fight, a man is serving his wife and kids. It's not just an issue of him and his soul, but in his fight, he is fighting for those he loves or even for a future wife, future kids. Explain that. Yeah, um, to the man who's fighting with pornography, uh, the, the, the thing that y- your children will um, recognize that there will be uh, substandard affections for their mother. And it will set the tone, if they've got sons, for their mindset towards a woman and daughters. Um, it, will, it, it, will, it will create in them a, a phenomenal vacuum of what they look for in a man. And not only just look for in a man, but what their expectations are. And could also impact them not having certain level of expectations from a man because one of the things that pornography does is it saps away your a, a lot of your um you know over uh, uh, proverbs chapter 5 it talks uh, it talks about um you know drinking water from your own cistern which points to the fact that sexual desires is like drinking water basically it fulfills a thirst and when you fulfill your thirst from ungodly means it drains you from your ability to to pour affections that God has given you into godly places. And so that means it'll affect your relationship, your sexual relationship with your wife. Um, it'll affect your affections for her, which will affect your oneness with her, which will affect your children's view of your marriage because your marriage won't be growing. In other words, pornography stunts the growth of a marriage because it puts oneness with your spouse on hold. So much more can be said on on the topic of pornography and needs to be said. Um, but I want to shift gears and talk about the local church. A remarkable point in your book is is how you tie the gospel mission to strong biblical manhood. And you make this connection. On, on page 165, you talk about the, the riskless environment of a local church not on mission creates boredom among men. Explain how manhood and mission are or can be connected in a local church. Yeah, yeah. One of the big things that I'm learning—from being a church planner— I've seen the impact of vision casting and what it has on men and people giving their lives to a cause. I mean, and this is true of women too, but it's even more true of men because I do believe that God has given man sort of this conquering desire that's redeemed, that can be redeemed through Jesus Christ. And when you present men who, 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 um, uh, and Carl Ellis talks a lot about this in his dissertation that's going to get published uh, on, on, you know, the difference between social concerns and core cultural concerns and how men are, are very, he, he talks about how men are very much so drawn to cultural concerns, not just relational concerns or social concerns. And so one of the things that I think vision casting does and, and, and global vision casting, not just community, um, even though, I, you know, I'm, I'm in an inner city, so I believe in doing community ministry. We do it. Um, but we're also building a school and helping empower pastors in Malawi to do church planting movements and to engage their own people in Malawi and Uganda with the gospel. And so 
and so, and so with that in mind, as 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 men are drawn basically to a, a, a broader vision than just the pastor's personal vision or a local church, his personal vision in their neighborhood. I, I think that it's fun, it's phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal for pastors to think through a lot of the reasons why some men aren't at the church because we have very small God-sized visions. You do a fine job of explaining this in the book, too. Thank you for that. Um, it seems that father, fatherlessness is, of course, a major problem, and we could do you know an entire podcast to addressing single parent homes, single parent moms. But fatherlessness, you write, can be manifested when a dad is in the home but simply neglects the needs of his family. And I think, I think for me as a dad, this is my biggest fear as a husband and as a father of three. Uh, I never feel like I've done enough. I mean, what what are some warning signs that a father should watch for? that would signal that maybe, although he's physically there, he's not engaged in the family like he should be? You know, it's interesting. You know, I read this book, Fatherless America, and it has different categories of fatherlessness in it, which is mind-boggling. And, you know, I was watching The Incredibles with, with my kids one day, and I can, I'll can i never forget the Mr. Incredible. It sounds weird, but it's going somewhere. My Mr. One day, he came, Mr. Incredible came home, and, you know, he was living a mediocre life or whatever. He wasn't Mr. Credible anymore. And his his mom was at the table, and she's like, it's interesting they made her an elastic girl or whatever. And she's trying to manage all of these different things. But even with her being so elastic, there was – and being able to break the kids up from fighting at the table and all of this. And he had walked away and was doing something else, and she, and she asked him to engage. And I will never – I never forgot that – because I looked at that as an example of how a father, and you saw the impact on the children, and especially his daughter, the impact of him not engaging in his family. And I, and, and I, and I think that men need to recognize that. Because one of the things that, especially suburban men of different ethnicities can fall into the trap of is because they provide, or blue-collar men as well, you know, because we provide and we work hard, that's enough for the family. And and the issue is it's not enough to just work, then come home and sit because you're drained from being able to engage your family. Now one of the things that men have to do is they have to they have to they have to have, have moments in time regularly during the week in which they're specifically engaging and knowing where their kids are. Sometimes we'll eat in front of the T V but some other times we'll Eat at the table. You know, I know people got different views on that. But in eating at the table is not just eating at the table because you can still be present. Asking them about their day, uh, specifically engaging them, and having a trajectory for their spiritual formation and development. That is so – that's why I spend a chapter on, the, you know, on vision, just really uh, – actually, it's within the family chapter. Um, working on working on that idea of vision because most men can't communicate a vision that they have for their household. They just say, I want my kids to be good kids, and I want my wife, I want to, even, I'm talking about good Christian men will say, man, I just want my wife, I want to have a great marriage. You know, like, what's the plan? You know, that doesn't just happen, you know, and so, you know, the Bible says the plans of a man are established by the Lord, and so that means God is sovereign, but he sovereignly works with plans. And so, you know, and so plans are put, you know, that's why I says the, um, the um, plans belong to man, but the answer from the tongue belongs to the Lord. Because man has been given the responsibility under the sovereignty of God to plan, and so for me that that that's that's something that men have to practically work on. Because most men are being 
hit at by their wife, baby, can you leave? Baby, can you? And it's like, man, it's, and they see it as a nag, but the reason why they're getting nagged is because they don't have a plan. That was Eric Mason, a church planter who lives and ministers in the heart of Philadelphia. He is the co-founder and lead pastor of Epiphany Fellowship. He is the, a husband and a father, and he's the author of a new book titled Manhood Restored, How the Gospel Makes Men Whole, published by B&H. It's worth checking out, and also worth checking out, is the Manhood Restored Leader Kit DVD series from Lifeway. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Authors on the Line podcast. This free podcast is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis. You can subscribe and find a full archive of episodes by searching for Authors on the Line in the iTunes store, or watch for new episodes online at desiringgod.org forward slash blog. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. Thank you for listening.